One of the traffic signs that licensed drivers must learn to follow is the one-way sign. This sign directs all vehicles to travel a given street in one direction. But wherever there is a one-way sign, we realize that there's actually two ways. You can travel the wrong way down a one-way. I invite you to turn this morning to the Psalms. And to the first psalm, which we've read earlier, this first psalm of the Hebrew Psalter stands like a one-way sign. It points us one direction, and it warns us against going the wrong direction. This psalm reveals that in the mercy of God, the right direction does not lead to mere duty. It doesn't lead to misery or sorrow or judgment. In the mercy of God, the right direction leads to joy. It leads to satisfaction. It leads to the wonder of knowing God. The right direction leads us to the fruits of a life that synchronizes with the goodness and the pleasures of the Lord. That's the right direction. On the other hand, the psalm will sternly warn us That steering our lives in the wrong direction leads to dire consequences. And I think then as we come to this first psalm, we need to be asking this question as we walk into it. Is my life tracking in the right direction? Is it headed the right way? For those that are older among us, perhaps the children are gone and beginning to orient your life toward the last days and the last half of your journey. Perhaps you have lived on the right path to the best of your knowledge for many years, but the question then is, will you end well? Will we take the counsel of God and end well? For those middle-aged and younger adults, as we juggle life's many responsibilities, as you continue to aim your life at certain goals? Are you heading in the right direction? or Are you being subtly pulled away by the philosophies of this world? Pulled the wrong direction. For those that are children among us, very likely your parents have you here and they're watching in an external way that you walk down the right path, at least in the outward sense of the word. But what direction is your heart leaning Down what path will your life take you when you leave home someday? Where will you go? How will you live? In the first three verses of this gateway into the Psalter, we consider the way of satisfaction in verses 1-3. through Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What is the path of blessedness? In verse 1, we look at the negative truth. This is what we are not to do. In verse 2, you notice the word but, his delight. In contrast to the negative, what we're not to do, here's what we are to do. Verse 1, blessed is the man. This word blessed is a word that almost defies definition. It can be honorably translated happy, or fortunate, or rewarded. 
But these words hardly convey the full meaning of the idea of blessedness. To be blessed is to live a life that synchronizes with the goodness of God. It's to be rooted in the person of God. To be rejoicing and receiving the blessings, the promises, and the grace of God. To be blessed is to live this life. To live in a way that finds satisfaction in who God is. And that prospers under His care. Athletes strive to win championships. Research physicians strive to find cures. Business people go after profit. You know what godly people go after? They go after blessedness. They want to know that relationship with God in which they can rejoice in His being and be fed by His power and His mercies. Blessedness is the quest of those who walk with God. It's what they want above all else. It's a state of rich spiritual vibrancy that prospers under the grace and promises of God. God's counsel then, if you want that life, Do you want to be in that relationship with God? His counsel here, He comes and puts His arm around us and says, here's the way to it. Here's the direction to that kind of life. Negatively, here's what we don't do. The blessed one is one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he rejects the philosophies of those who do not love God. He rejects ideas of those who fill the air as Martin Luther put it, with the counsels of their own brain. Their own human ideas. There's a rejection of that type of thinking and philosophy as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossian church, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't let anyone take you captive by these philosophies. Those who experience the blessing of God think differently than the world around them. That's what we're learning here as God points us in this direction. We're going to think differently. There are many sources of godless counsel that surround us. Anyone who's in a public school knows that there are philosophies there that are being proclaimed that are against the direction that God would have us to go. We must resist them. We need to be awake. We need to be listening and discerning. Every one of us who interacts with our neighbors, and we should, knows that there are godless philosophies that will be discussed. We need to be careful not to be drawn in with friends and family that do not know the Lord. There will be philosophies that lead us in the wrong direction. We need to be discerning and to resist that kind of thinking. And certainly with the media which continues to pump out a godless message all the time. Often very subtle. Often bits and pieces of truth and what is good and right mixed in with the falsehood and the lie. We need to be discerning. You want the life of blessedness, of prosperity in your knowledge of God, you will not think like this world. You won't be trapped by its philosophies. Secondly, nor stands in the way of sinners. Here we move from the realm of thought 
to the realm of behavior. People express their rejection of God and their disdain for His counsel in various ways. Now, it's not necessarily always overt. People may not even perceive themselves as being in rejection of God and His ways. But this is our natural bent. This is the world's natural direction. And it's expressed in various ways. It's expressed in literature. It's expressed in art, in music, in technology, in fashion, in entertainment. A person who desires to prosper in relationship with God will not stand in this way. Will not identify with this with the behavior of this world. If you hope to travel God's way, you will recognize that there are unworthy behaviors of sinners and you'll refuse to stand with them. Thirdly, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We move then from thought to conduct and now to communion. This phrase addresses the realm of fellowship. Fellowship with scoffers and by the way, I don't think that when, as we go from walking to standing to sitting that there's necessarily a degradation morally here. But poetically, there certainly is a movement of walking and standing and sitting. It's the idea of being in the presence of sinners and fellowshipping there. Scoffers is a category of sinner. The scoffer is the one who is irreverent, who ridicules godless, godliness, who mocks people of faith and disdains the ways of God. People who know the blessing of God do not find communion with such people. They don't find fellowship with such people. This verse then is a call to what? This verse, we should see it painted all over. This is a call to holiness. This is a call to what the Bible describes as this moral distinctiveness of the people of God, of God Himself. It's a call to separate oneself from the world's thinking, behavior, and fellowship. There must be a distance between us and this world, a distinction between us. The world is going one direction, we need to go the other direction. People who know the blessing of God do not see communion with people who despise God as an option. Now this is not a call to isolationism. We are to befriend sinners as a means of redemptive intervention. We're to come alongside them. We are to welcome them. We are to proclaim the Gospel of Christ to them. But here we're talking about seeking communion with those who reject Christ. That we're not to do. We are not to pull up a chair and dine at the communion table of godless people. You want to live a life that's blessed, you won't do that. Rather, rather than delighting in communion with the world, verse 2, here's the positive, but this one delights in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is the revelation from God that gives us truth. So I don't think we should think here the, the law of the Lord. Law is merely rules with punishment. Here it's talking about all of God's revelation, all of His truth. It includes in the biblical form narratives. It, in, it includes sections of instruction. It includes, in fact, laws, the commands of God. 
But I think we should think of it in the full orb sense of all that God has revealed. This is where the godly individual's desire is. His desire, his delight, is in the law of the Lord. Seeing it that way, then, it's obvious why there is delight in the law of the Lord. We shouldn't think of a law as pure, in a purely defensive sense as we maybe do in some sense in our culture. I, I mean, I delight in the fact that the government can't seize my property without at least going through some hoops. I, mean, I delight in that, but that's only a certain level of delight. I'm thankful for it. That's not the idea here. There's certain laws of God and we're glad that in a defensive sense that they protect us. No, the, the idea here is a delight in a person. Such delight does not come from packing heads full of theology. It comes from knowing God. It might not be a bad idea to pack our heads with theology, but it's never an end in itself. This delight indicates that God's Word is a means of participating in the life of God. It is how we come to know Him. We don't find delight in words on a page. We, do, we find delight in the God those words reveal. So rather than heeding the counsel of the world, the blessed delight in the counsel of God. I'd like us to think a little bit longer here. And I, I think it's very significant. This light, this revelation from God, comes from an external, not an internal source. That is crucial. It comes from outside of us, not from inside of us. In his Nobel Prize acceptance speech in 2009, President Obama exhorted his hearers, I quote, So let us reach for that spark of the divine that still stirs within each of our souls. And it brought the loudest applause of the whole speech. Because he said there exactly what the world believes and wants desperately to believe. That the answer, the spark, is inside. What we find here is that the light is outside. It's external to us. It comes from God to us in our sin and in our darkness. Worldly wisdom looks inward for saving light. True blessing is found in an external source. In the revelation. The revelation of the salvation that is in our God. And so far from seeking light in ourselves, we are, as Calvin put it, to renounce the guidance of our own affections and submit ourselves entirely to God, leaving Him to govern us and to dispose of our life according to His will. To delight in the law of God that liberates. That's where the focus is. The end of verse 2, on this law, he meditates day and night. It's a delight that would follow that he meditates day and night. Now this is obviously a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that he meditates once in the morning and once at night. Nor does it mean that he meditates every single second of the day on the Word of God. It's not like this, this word got around to everybody, don't let Christians operate heavy equipment. You know, they're always, their mind's always on Scripture. That's all, that's all they ever think about. Not, not, a, not the case. It's just a figure of speech that the Word of God is always there. And it's turning over in his mind. He meditates on it day and night. This word means to chew on. To meditate means to chew on, to turn over in the mind, to contemplate and to ponder. 
Puritan Thomas Watson put this so well. He said, The bee sucks the flower, then works it in the hive, and so turns it to honey. By reading God's Word, we suck the flower of His truth. By meditation, we work it in the hive of our mind. And so it turns to profit. Meditation is the bellows of affection. It fans the flame of desire for God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Meditation. We work it into the hive of our minds. He meditates on God's Word night and day. This says to us then that the biblical narrative is to shape my narrative, not the other way around. It is crucial that we grasp that this source is external to us, not internal that we're looking to God and His revelation. But it's secondly vital here to understand that the biblical narrative then is to shape my story, not the the other way around. We don't fit the Bible into our lives. We don't mold it to fit our innate perceptions. This is the way I see things. This is what seems right in my gut. Now I turn to the Bible to find support and to mold the Bible into my story rather than to look to this external Word as that which directs my story. We live under the Word then. The Word does not live under us. And so with this external Word, meditating, chewing, pondering, understanding it, we find our delight in God through this Word. There's a skill here we need to develop. And I, I think I probably speak to every one of us. We're not, we probably won't have anybody stand up and say, I'm really good at meditating on God's Word. I don't think it probably st- struck you that way when you first read that. You're like, how often do I meditate on God's Word? How do I meditate on God's Word? Let me say the most obvious thing possible, but it needs to be said, we must read it. Or hear it read but we need to be hearing or reading or taking in the Bible. If the only place you take in the Bible is here on Sunday morning, I'm glad that you do. But that's not meditation. Night and day. We have to go from here and we have to read the Bible. A suggestion only but I think it makes sense to read at least something early in the morning so that we can keep thinking about what we've read through the day. Now, it's certainly very possible to read something at night and think about it the next morning. But I think the way that we're wired typically is if I can think about something early in the morning, I can take it with me through the day and continue to mull over that truth, to reason through it. And as I meditate, what exactly does that mean? Do I sit in a corner of my head and make buzzing sounds? Or what does meditation mean? It simply means to ask questions about the text. To think about its implications. So ask questions as you mull it over. Why is this true? It's a very fruitful question to ask when the Bible says don't do this or do this. Why is it that that's wrong? Why is it that that's right? Some very fruitful ideas can come out of thinking through that. Why would God say not to do that? Why would He say to do this? What difference does it make? Another fruitful question to ask of a text of Scripture. 
Why does this matter? Why is this important? How does this verse apply to my life? What difference does it make? I may speak to some here, meditation is not a way of life for you. And this idea, it is so connected to blessedness, it's absolutely essential. But it is right at the end of your fingertips. And if you don't grab it, it's never going to be there. And I would say to you, it's possible for some that the one way and the best way right now to grab that idea is to take this church's memory program and to tag into it. It's as simple as it gets. One verse a week. To memorize that verse. To take that verse. It's provided for you. It's right out there on the literature table. You can get the sheet. You know what the verse is for the week. You memorize that verse. You think about that verse. That may be a means of meditation for you. That's no problem if you have some other way. But don't say, I don't need that. I'm not going to learn that verse. I'm not going to think about that like they're telling me to. And you replace it with nothing. Do whatever is best. No one's telling anybody they have to memorize that verse. But for some, that may be the best place to grab on. And to take that one verse a week and to chew on it, to ask questions about it, to commit it to memory, to think about it. And in that, as you follow this plan, you become one who meditates on the Word of God. I'll add one more idea here just by way of practical suggestion. Look for brain-dead tasks. Brain-dead tasks are a great place for the memory of God's Word. My most brain-dead task perhaps in life is shaving. I, you stare at this mirror as you watch yourself shave. It is the most ridiculous task <laughs> that you have to deal with. I just put verses on my mirror that will steer my attention to the Word of God on a daily basis to meditate in that brain-dead moment. Where's yours? Might be driving in the car. Be cautious, that's not a totally brain-dead thing. It might be on the dash of the car. It might be dishes right there at the sink. Just post a little note that allows you to think about God's Word and just brings to your attention His truth and you just mull it over in your mind. It's in some sense the easiest thing to do. We don't have to sit down and take a Bible and take some time and read through a lengthy passage of Scripture. It's in some ways the hardest thing because it's so easy to set aside and never think about. Listen, God is counseling us here and He's saying, do you want a life that is blessed? Do you want a life that is prospering and alive and vibrant? Then you will delight to take My Word and to chew on it and meditate on it and think about it, not just on Sunday morning, every day of your life. We've got a job to do. And if we're not meditating on the Word of God, how can we imagine that God is going to bless our way if we live week in and week out without His Word affecting us, we're tracking in the wrong direction and we need to change. Joshua said in the book of Joshua chapter 1, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And we see that prospect for one who delights in God's Word in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In the Middle East, the weather becomes very dry at the time of year in which fruit ripens and matures and the stream beds are dried up. So the idea here probably is of, of one who carefully cultivates Uh, the planting of this tree, plants it with care, and then puts it next to an irrigation ditch and continues to feed it with water so that it doesn't dry up. Its fruit is rich. The person who shuns the wisdom and ways of the world and lives in sync with God's Word then is like a healthy, vibrant, fruitful tree. Does this mean that the godly are immune to suffering? That's how we want to read this. In all that he does, he prospers. That has to mean, and some people will take this phrase, even Christian teachers, and this say, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to have no illness. He wants everything to work out beautifully in your life for everything to go well. Well, that's the best-selling book right there. Just start with Psalm 2. Go to Psalm 3. Go through this Psalter and try to maintain that idea. Life is messy. The psalmist will tell us there's all kinds of trials and problems and sorrows. There's places where the psalmists are in anguish before God over and over as they face the difficulties of this life. This is no promise to health and wealth. This is a prosperity that goes far deeper than health and wealth. This Psalter will bear out as it will bear witness Again and again, life in this waking world is filled with trouble. But those who travel in the direction that God points us are sustained by Him through those trials. The heat of trouble may press upon us, but the water of God's Word feeds us and gives us vibrancy. On this side of the cross, such vibrant rootedness is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the water that quenches all thirst, John 4. He is the wellspring that sustains eternal life. That vibrancy comes through the written Word of God which points us to the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And that blessedness feeds us through any trial and difficulty of life. That's the way forward, God says. To renounce fellowship with the world is the one way to blessedness. To delight in God's Word and meditate on it is the one way to blessedness. But you can go the wrong way. Down the one way. Verse 4, we consider the way of destruction. The wicked are not so. The psalmist says. This picture of vibrancy of fruitfulness, of blessedness, of relating to God with delight and being fed by His Word in distinction from a world that is headed to destruction. All of that, the godly are not like that. 
The Hebrew draws very careful emphasis here upon this phrase. Spurgeon translated it, not so the wicked, not so. Where the godly are likened to a verdant tree, the wicked are likened to the chaff that the wind drives away. Think of that contrast. The chaff, that's that dry husk beaten loose from the grain and then the grain thrown in the air and the wind blows the husk away. It's meaningless. The wicked then are are meaningless, rootless, weightless, useless, lifeless, ultimately blown away by judgment. Their mark on history will be obliterated. The wicked are like chaff, yet the wind blows away. Therefore, verse 5, that is because of the direction in life that the wicked have chosen to take, verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's a debatable point, but I think there's good reason. We'll not take time to work through it here, but I think there's good reason to believe the judgment in view here is rendered by the congregation of believers in this life. That's the judgment you see there, the congregation of the righteous. That could refer eschatologically to the future, the judgment before God. But I think again, there's reasons to believe that just as the believer does not stand in the presence of the ungodly here, so the ungodly cannot stand in the presence of the righteous. We cannot be popular in two places. Either we will stand with distinction among God's people or we will find acceptance and popularity with the world. It will be one or the other. You can be popular among the ungodly, but you will not stand under the scrutiny of the righteous. And if you stand under the scrutiny of the righteous who receive you and praise God for the goodness of your life, you will not be popular in this world among the righteous the psalmist tells us the ungodly have no leg to stand on and they have no place of influence because they're not rooted to god and what is true in the congregation of the righteous on earth will ultimately be reflected in eternity for now he introduces the lord's judgment verse six the lord knows the way of the righteous We'll get back to that thought. But the way of the wicked will perish. God is the only judge in the universe whose opinion ultimately matters. This reality is set before us. Let's highlight it. Let's think on it. Let's meditate on this idea. I think the most horrific grief any soul will ever experience is to stand in judgment before the living God and be sent away. To be judged by God is the greatest of all horrors. There are only two ways to relate to God and only two ways that God will relate to us. The right way leads to satisfaction and joy. The wrong way leads to grief and destruction. God is counseling us here and saying this is how it is. When a person goes the wrong way down God's one way, the road leads off a cliff. It lands in the pit of destruction. But there are those who delight in God's law and they live 
There are those who break God's law and they die. They're not among the righteous and they'll not stand before God. Now this may strike you as saying, I don't really like to hear this. This doesn't work with me. In fact, I'm really concerned because I'm not righteous. I'm not filled with goodness. I am not rooted in God. And it concerns me to think that there's only two ways and I will stand someday before God in judgment. I don't think I can do that. If you're thinking that, that's really, really good. Because you're coming to recognize that the answer is not internal, it's external. The answer is not in you living a life that God will accept, being so righteous and so good that God says, you know, I've got to let you in. You're really pretty good. The revelation that develops as this book unfolds is that righteousness itself is a gift from God. It comes from an external source. The righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ The sinless Lamb of God taking the place of the sinner, dying in the sinner's place, and and coming then to life and resurrection to give life to those who trust Him for forgiveness and for life. This is the good news. The good news is that it doesn't depend upon you pleasing God in your own strength. It comes simply in receiving from Him the righteousness that He will impute to your account, the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. The righteous will stand in the judgment before God. The righteous will not perish, not because of their own innate goodness, not because there's some spark of the divine within them, but because God has acted upon them in grace. And because, as the first part of verse 6 says, the Lord knows the righteous. He knows that as He identifies with, He cares for, He loves His people. Again, not because we have earned that love, but because He's placed it upon us as we come humbly in repentance to trust in the salvation that He gives by His grace alone. Now if you're awake at all, about this culture and the world that we live in, it's pretty obvious to you that this psalm is at fundamental odds with the philosophies of our day. It's just really opposed to everything we see around us. It's not politically correct. It's not culturally acceptable to speak of one way and judgment upon those who reject it. You can't talk like that. Only an evil, controlling, divisive, unloving, legalistic, cultic kind of church would paint such a picture, we're told over and over again, even by some who claim to be Christians. The problem is, they're Christians who have no regard for the teachings of Jesus Himself. We can take the Word and mold it to our own purposes. We can take the Word and use it like putty to fit what we want to believe. But if we go to the Word and allow the external Word of God to speak the truth of God, listen to these very clear words. 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The words of Jesus. We cannot escape this reality. The way of Christ is narrow and it is exclusive. Why is that the case? Let's meditate. We ask the question, why is that the case? Because God is holy. Which is another way of saying that God is narrow-minded. God is very distinctive in this world in His purity, in His righteousness, in His thinking. He's different from the world that's living in rejection of Him. He's narrow-minded. You're either with Him or against Him. There's no middle ground. There's a broad way. Many find it. There's a narrow way. Few find it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostles preached in Acts chapter 4. A narrow way, a broad way. Two destinies, not three. Heaven, hell, life, death. No limbo. So if you honor this God, you're going to appear narrow-minded and prejudiced to a world that wants to create a million ways. God's Word reveals only two. One leading to misery. One leading to life. There's only one way because there's only one Creator and Sustainer and Source of life. We must tap into Him or we have nothing. That one way points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to His words, to His death, to His resurrection, and to fellowship with Him. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And His life ended on a cross. Rejected. There's one way to satisfaction and joy. It's in the resurrection joy of Christ. There's just one way. In this life and the next. And that way is Christ. Is that the way that you are traveling? Is that where you find your delight? Let's pause for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for Your mercies to us in Christ and for the wonder, the delight of knowing Him. I pray in behalf of anyone who is separated from Jesus here today and pray that You would show them the wonder of forgiveness. They're never going to figure this out on their own. They're not going to be able to reason through it. But I pray that by Your Spirit You would give them eyes to see the reality that has been revealed here. I pray that those of us who know You would truly delight in Your Word and that we would give ourselves to this kind of prosperity, this feeding of the roots of our soul on the life-giving Word of God. May we move from here and seek to 
order our lives, to prioritize Your Word, and to rejoice in Your presence. There is so much for all of us to do in response to this passage, whoever we are. And I pray that You would make clear by Your Spirit now to each individual soul what he or she must do to seek Your salvation. To seek blessedness. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.